Welcome to the Digital Edge with Sharon Nelson and Jim Calloway. Your hosts, both legal technologists, authors, and lecturers, invite industry professionals to discuss a new topic related to lawyers and technology. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Welcome to the 117th edition of the Digital Edge Lawyers and Technology. We're glad to have you with us. I'm Sharon Nelson, president of Sensei Enterprises, an information technology, cybersecurity, and digital forensics firm in Fairfax, Virginia. And I'm Jim Calloway, director of the Oklahoma Bar Association's Management Assistance Program. Today, our topic is the practical application of AI to the legal profession. Before we get started, we'd like to thank our sponsors. Thanks to our sponsor, Clio. Clio's cloud-based practice management software makes it easy to manage your law firm from intake to invoice. Try it for free at clio.com. That's C-L-I-O.com. We'd like to thank Answer One, a leading virtual receptionist and answering services provider for lawyers. You can find out more by giving them a call at 800-ANSWER-1 or online at www.answerone.com. That's www.answer1.com. Thanks to Scorpion. Scorpion sets the standard for law firm online marketing with proven campaign strategies to get attorneys better cases from the internet. Partner with Scorpion to get an award-winning website and ROI-positive marketing programs today. Visit scorpionlegal.com slash podcast. Thanks to ServeNow, a nationwide network of trusted, pre-screened process servers. Work with the most professional process servers who have experience with high-volume serves, embrace technology, and understand the litigation process. Visit servenow.com to learn more. We are very pleased to have as our guest Brian Kuhn, who is the co-founder and co-leader of Watson Legal. As an inventor and former practicing insurance attorney, Brian focuses on defining and building the Watson Legal business globally with an emphasis on business of law over practice of law use cases. In his role, Brian is responsible for defining IBM's overall strategic vision and go-to-the-market strategy for Watson Legal. Brian is a global thought leader on the intersection of artificial intelligence and the legal domain and speaks frequently at legal events in the United States, Europe, and Asia. Thanks for joining us today, Brian. Thanks for uh, having me, uh, Jim and Sharon. It's a real pleasure to be with you here today. Well, let's start out, Brian, by asking you, what's the difference between cognitive computing and artificial intelligence? Because I note that IBM uses the term cognitive computing to describe Watson's capabilities instead of using AI. It's difference without a distinction. So Watson relies on on cognitive computing, its approach, as you correctly stated, to AI. And our approach is very much one of augmented intelligence. And that's what cognitive computing is, uh, is, is, is considering, is augmented intelligence, empowering non-technical end users like attorneys, like practicing attorneys, business people, with insights that amplify, that scale their expertise to ensure that they're more informed, not that they're replaced. And because we're very particular about that, we say cognitive computing 
cognitive computing dovetails with augmented intelligence. Um, most data, including almost all legal data, is what we call unstructured data. In other words, it's narrative text, uh, like a page in a novel, or more appropriately, a page in a legal professional journal, or the, uh, the, the, the contents, the substantive contents of a pleading. And human language, especially legalese, is full of ambiguity. We can express ourselves a hundred different ways, and we can say the same thing even more. And we use sarcasm and tone that depends upon the context of the industry, the client, the interpersonal exchange that we're having at any given moment. And computers haven't been able to touch this information because they only understood us literally. But now they're capable of speaking legalese. And so another thing that cognitive computing is capable of doing is understanding language in the context of the industry at issue. Brian, here's a question I get asked frequently. Why should the legal community care about cognitive computing or AI? Really for three reasons. First, the world is producing data, meaningful data, at an accelerating rate. Most of it is unstructured. And human beings simply can't read it, analyze it, and connect the dots, not anymore. Without AI, we'll be buried in data. And this is as true for the legal profession as it is for the medical profession, for example. Second, with AI, we can turn that buried in data scenario to our advantage and perhaps even legitimately leverage it into the greatest professional advantage we've ever had. Uh, and I'm talking about client service here. So, for example, suppose you've represented Acme Corporation for 10 years. Acme hires you for a particular area of expertise. Well, what if you could use AI to read all of the work product you've created on Acme's behalf, as well as what opposing counsel has created were relevant, and identify non-obvious connections that resulted in past success in the context of Acme's needs? You could use that information to better serve Acme than you could achieve now, than any human being could achieve now in the hyper-context. And third, the third reason, is that clients of law firms are investing in AI solutions to do a broad range of things. And the advantages that they provide are simply too great for these clients not to expect similar efficiencies from their legal service providers to the use of AI. Again, for example, if I'm an insurance company and I invest in a tool that more accurately predicts claims fraud, well, technology like that will become table stakes. I'm going to expect the same or similar efficiencies from the law firms that represent me. Well, I, I know you're right about that because we're seeing that all the time. Um, see if you could explain to me why Watson Legal focuses primarily on augmenting the business of law as opposed to the practice of law. ROI. Most cases take 18 to 24 months to settle a resolved trial. That really means 18 to 24 months for an AI tool to demonstrate ROI in a practice of law scenario. Also, accelerating the practice of law really doesn't result in a significant financial benefit for our clients, which is surprising, but this is what we've learned after conducting over 100 different use case identification workshops. Using AI, on the other hand, to help determine profitability, to repurpose prior work product in the context of the current scenario, to compete, uh, to draft billing entries that are never rejected, these produce measurable benefits and also have a short time to value. How is Watson being used by legal entities today? Most of our clients are corporate law departments and government agencies, particularly the corporate law departments with large external counsel spends. 
We will pivot to serve law firms soon, but the most significant demand has come from the clients of law firms around reducing outside counsel spend and repurposing previous work product with AI in the context of the situation at hand. You'll, 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 you'll notice that that's a common refrain, uh, and we'll speak about it soon when we, when we discuss the top-ranked use cases that we're seeing globally that were a product of those 100 workshops we conducted. Okay, before we move on to our next segment, let's take a quick commercial break. Is your firm experiencing missed calls, empty voicemail boxes, and potential clients you'll never hear from again? Enter AnswerOne Virtual Receptionists. They're more than just an answering service. AnswerOne is available 24-7. They can even schedule appointments, respond to emails, integrate with Clio, and much more. AnswerOne helps make sure your clients have the experience they deserve. Give them a call at 1-800-ANSWER-1 or visit them at answerone.com forward slash podcast for a special offer. Looking for a process server you can trust? ServeNow.com is a nationwide network of local pre-screened process servers. ServeNow works with the most professional process servers in the country. Connect your firm with process servers who embrace technology, have experience with high-volume serves, and understand the litigation process and the rules of properly effectuating service. Find a pre-screened process server today. Visit ServeNow.com. Welcome back to the Digital Edge on the Legal Talk Network. Today, our subject is the practical application of AI to the legal profession. And our guest is Brian Kuhn, who is the co-founder and co-leader of Watson Legal. Brian, you've stated that you've developed a framework for evaluating and prioritizing uses for cognitive computing slash AI in the legal domain. Uh, Can you summarize what that framework consists of? Certainly. Uh, There are certainly good applications and bad applications as judged by business value and time to value. Uh, when, when, When we began Watson Legal, we met with and were fortunate to meet with all of the clients that said, yes, we will agree to meet with you. And we heard them raise their hand and say, I want to do this with Watson. I want to do that with Cognitive. Um, But what we learned is that there are several metrics of success that we look at when evaluating the practical fit, the practical and ethical application of cognitive technology to the legal domain. On the one hand, historically, when Watson Legal was a new business, we encountered scenarios where our clients brought us potential ideas. We were privileged to do business with them. We were privileged to speak with them, so we said yes. But we learned from those experiences that there are patterns of interest that cluster into several broad categories. And we've conducted over 100 use case identification workshops in North America, Asia, and Europe. And we've asked our clients to bring 10 ideas to each workshop. We'll evaluate those ideas according to the metrics that I'm about to share, and we'll end up with one prioritized use case. Well, we've taken those prioritized use cases back to the lab, and we've ranked them globally, and that's informed our go-to-market approach in terms of how we hope to serve the legal community. And so we begin by looking at whether or not a cognitive use case addresses a clearly recognized business opportunity, goal, or pain point. In other words, is it, hey, I want to do something with cognitive, says the client, or is is it an opportunity for us and the client to align 
such that we're not a hammer looking for a nail? And is it associated with augmenting a busy or a high-activity process, something that, from a workflow perspective, attorneys and legal professionals do a lot to confirm business value? And then does it have a cognitive element? In other words, does it involve doing something that people tend to do, such as reading, such as analyzing, such as training, or things to do with language? And does it utilize readily available, high-quality, accessible content and a defined data repository of mostly narrative text, mostly unstructured data, not information in fields and databases, no SQL backends, but the substantive content of speedings, for example? So those are the first four elements that we look at, and then from there, we go a bit deeper, and we look at four additional metrics. We look at the potential benefit of the use case to IBM's client. Is it high, medium, or low? It's high if it provides a clear, significant financial ROI. It's medium if it provides a positive ROI, but it's less quantifiable. And it's low if the metrics are unclear with little or no clarity into potential ROI. So we look, again, at the, at the benefit to, to, to our client, and then we look at the benefit to the end user. That might be our client, and it might be the client of our client, a law firm's client, for example. Then we look at strategic alignment, and this goes back to making sure that we are not a hammer looking for a nail, that we're not aligning with a client that wants to do something perhaps less than transformative that won't really help them. So we try respectfully to guide them towards something that can have an enterprise-wide or practice area-wide effect on their business, a positive effect. And then finally, the fourth element is speed to implementation. In other words, some organizations have an appetite to do something transformative, and that might take two years. And there might be an implementation that consists of various stages, each delivering value, but it's a long-term approach. Other organizations, they have an appetite for something smaller, something that provides a more immediate return on investment. And so understanding that allows us to better serve our clients. That's a long process, don't you think, Jim? <laughs> it really is. I was, I was thinking I should have started taking notes when we went through that. <laughs> well, but here's the thing about that. It is a long process. And so we're dealing not with a point solution. In the past, products were sold in boxes. And everybody that downloaded a product, so to speak, got the same product. Here, we're doing due diligence on the front end to make sure that there's a fit because we're taking something that's 70% built and 30% customizable. And in return for that due diligence, what our clients get is something that operates in the context of their needs, of their clients' needs, not in general. And so from that process, we're able to, to bang the drum again for my context mantra um, and deliver value. Do you encounter reoccurring patterns of interest in certain use cases once you evaluate and prioritize use cases with clients? And if so, could you describe a couple of them? Absolutely. Uh, I can think of two. Um, so with corporate law departments, the primary concern that they've shared with us, particularly in the financial services space, no one hires more external lawyers than financial services companies, banks and insurance companies, uh, is outside counsel spend. These companies are spending 30 to 50% of their entire law department's annual budget on outside counsel and are already using analytics to look at legal invoices. And so they're looking at structured information, UBTMS codes, timekeeper identity, 
how much time a timekeeper builds on a task. The lawyers, outside lawyers, they, they are incorrect in terms of their designation of UBTMS codes 30 to 40% of the time. We sold outside counsel insights, which is a tool that I invented uh, together with Shauna Hoffman, my, my co-leader of Watson Legal, to an insurance client that had a $1.3 billion per year external counsel spend. We showed them a $392 million savings. They were already using structured data analytics. What we did, what outside counsel insights does that's different, is that it reads like a person the narrative task descriptions contained within invoices and either designates the appropriate UBTMS code or, I should say, and or, provides a very granular, high-definition understanding of what an appropriate level of effort is for repeatable legal tasks and at the line at a level at that so that companies can move forth with evidence towards fixed-fee billing strategies or can enlarge their fixed-fee billing strategies. This is a tool that most large insurers in the United States are discussing with us right now. The second pattern is not unique to corporate GCs. The second pattern is the most dominant pattern across different types of legal entities, and it really is cognitive knowledge management. We call it early case insights. And I've hit upon it a bit already. The idea is, can I mine my vast repository of historical work product that I, as a law firm, as a practice area within a firm, or as a company that hires law firms uh, and have used external counsel, can I repurpose this information in the context of my current needs? If I'm a company, this means perhaps I still need outside counsel, but in whole or in part, I can repurpose work that I have bought and paid for and not have to repeat it and reduce the number of links in the chain in terms of needing outside counsel. If I'm a law firm, I can delight my client because this is in the context, again, of their needs, what I've done for them. Perhaps I can even charge my client slightly more money in return for a more consistent, timely legal result and something that takes their unique needs and our relationship over time with that client into account. In other words, this is about operationalizing what law firms, legal entities do well, democratizing it throughout the legal organization and producing a profound level of consistency in delivering client service. Interesting. Well, you know, I I certainly see some risk, at least, in, impl- in applying cognitive uh, computing slash AI to the legal domain. I'm curious to know whether you see any risk. I do. And that might sound provocative, uh, coming from someone who uh, for whom this is a great passion. Uh, however, I do. The greatest risk, I would respectfully submit, is if the legal community academics, practitioners, technologists, the legal community doesn't come together soon to think about a framework for the practical and ethical application of AI to the legal space, defined framework, a Sedona conference analog, if you will. The legal community needs to inform and own the narrative about how AI technology should and should not be used. And without a formal structure, we're just reacting. And I say this respectfully, but definitively. There's been a lot written about law firms, in particular, adopting technology at a, at a slower pace, perhaps, than, than businesses in other industries. But in general, it hasn't been an existential issue. 
Over the next several years, deep technological prowess will absolutely be an existential issue for law firms. And so, if I may, at MIT, on October 30th and 31st of this year, in, in, in collaboration with a number of businesses, IBM is going to put forth the proposed framework that the legal community can change and alter and amend as it sees fit, uh, but put forth the proposed framework for the ethical and practical application of AI and blockchain technologies to the legal space. Well, that certainly sounds like a good idea. And as you know, I wanted very much to be at that conference and can't be, but um, I hope it goes well for you. <laughs> I, I worry about things like uh, human bias getting into uh, the AI cognitive computing uh, as it relates to, say, uh, assessing the risk of someone committing another crime or trying to determine sentences for people. Do, do things like that trouble you too? They do. I was at a conference in Zurich an international bar association conference in Zurich, and a question was asked about judges training cognitive tools, not just IBM's tools, but cognitive tools. Would those tools not inherit the biases of the judges? The answer is potentially they would, but that might be a good thing, because rather than moving forward with tools that inherit the biases of people, we might use these tools of mirrors to show us our own biases, and then we can react accordingly. We can react differently. Perhaps that's a way that they can be used in that context. Access to justice is another. Cognitive tools are trained. They're not programmed. They reason like the people who train them. Imagine lawyers using pro bono hours, donating pro bono hours to train cognitive tools in, for example, domestic violence law in a given state to help the dismally high number of litigants who have to defend themselves pro se. We are doing a miserable job right now uh, when it comes to access to justice as a country. I think that uh, as a developed nation, we're second to last or last in terms of access to justice for people with limited means. I don't know if we can solve that problem with warm human bodies. I don't know if we can scale. But technology, while no panacea, technology can certainly help going forward. And this is a, a quite positive implication of artificial intelligence in the legal space. You're more optimistic than I am, but I do love an optimist. Well, I, I think as somebody who's been working more on access to justice issues, there's certainly a huge need there that it is in question whether we have enough uh, warm bodies with JDs to uh, meet the need. Before we move on to our next segment, let's take a quick commercial break. Imagine what you could do with an extra eight hours per week. That's how much time legal professionals save with Clio, the world's leading practice management software. With intuitive time tracking, billing, and matter management, Clio streamlines everything you do to run your practice from intake to invoice. Try Clio for free and get a 10% discount for your first six months when you sign up with the code TDE10. Of course, you can find Clio at Clio.com. That's C-L-I-O dot com. Feel like your marketing efforts aren't getting you the high-value cases your firm deserves? For over 15 years, Scorpion has helped thousands of law firms just like yours attract new cases and grow their practices. As a Google Premier Partner and winner of Google's Platform Innovator Award, Scorpion has the right resources and technology to market your law firm aggressively and generate better cases from the Internet. For more information, visit scorpionlegal.com forward slash podcast. 
Welcome back to the Digital Edge on the Legal Talk Network. Today, our subject is the practical application of AI to the legal profession. And our guest is Brian Kuhn, who is the co-founder and co-leader of Watson Legal. So what is your prediction, Brian? What will the application of cognitive computing slash AI look like within the legal profession in, say, five years from now? It will look quite different than it does today. We're used to looking at AI from a solution standpoint. In other words, most of us imagine using software tools similar to the ones that we currently have, with the difference being that those tools also incorporate AI. I think that this approach is temporary, a bridge to something else, because the real power of AI is its ability to combine data from different domains of knowledge and generate net new insights. This is incredibly radical. Think about material science. Teflon and, and um, graphene. Most of the materials that have been discovered have been discovered by accident. But if a cognitive tool had access to open source data about these materials, research papers and so forth, it would be able to do what no human being can do. No matter how smart, no matter how intelligent you or I are, we can only be truly brilliant, if we're lucky, in one area. A machine can be meaningfully brilliant in many areas and can see non-obvious connections. I'm really talking about creativity. To my material science example, if most materials were discovered by accident, and if the smart machine had access to information about metals and fluid viscosity, etc., etc., it would be able to read more in less time than a human being or even a team of human beings ever could to produce net new insights. I think that's what we have to look forward to in the law. That's what we have to look forward to in medicine. A cardiologist right now sees you as a heart, not as a whole person. But of course you are a whole person. And of course, when a client approaches a law firm, its needs aren't really passed through the Swiss cheese filter, whatever practice area that law firm has. Its needs are more holistic. So being able to use AI to read broadly across information with expertise in multiple domains is the ultimate promise of artificial intelligence. I see each law firm in the future, having its own AI. Now, in addition to that, there's also the concept of cartridges. Cartridges that are trained to reason like the people who train them, such that you could point these cartridges at other data, and it would analyze that other data, as if by the lawyers who trained them. I can see a future where lawyers train cartridges, where there's a marketplace for cartridges. Uh, law firm X does something very, very well, but it's high volume and it would like to train cartridges to reason like it, and it offers them as a subscription service to its clients. Clients point those at their own data, and they get the benefit of all the know-how, the specific reasoning that they already value of that firm applied to their information. This is another change that I foresee. Well, discussing uh, technology changes, and if I might say things lawyers are scared of and don't want to think about, <laughs> is, is there an intersection between cognitive and AI and the blockchain technologies we hear so much about. I knew you were going there, Jim. <laughs> <laughs> there is, and until very recently, these two technologies have been presented as a separate transformational monoliths, AI and blockchain. But how do they intersect? AI deals with unstructured data largely. Blockchain, as we know, deals largely, has largely though, with structured data. Well, until now, Lawyers and their clients have operated in a, in a world of, of complex, of disconnected, siloed information. That's not new news. Locating facts, determining if-then conditions, like those contained in the Uniform Commercial Code, 
and whether those conditions have been met, arguing rights and obligations. These are some of the tasks that add complexity to legal processes, and the beauty of blockchain is its simplicity. It's a platform for everyone to know what's true, full visibility end-to-end. Trust is what blockchain represents. A blockchain is essentially a, we've heard the word ledger, but really think about it as a decentralized database that stores linked records of timestamped blocks, with each block representing a consensually agreed-upon record, like the section of the UCC. Each block is unchangeable. It refers to the previous block, and it's publicly visible to those who are members of, members of that particular blockchain consortium, and it's confirmed by consensus. So how might AI and blockchain work together? In the year 2000, the United Nations formed something called the Kimberley Process with the intent to reduce the proliferation of blood diamonds, conflict stones. And these are outlawed, of course, but they still make their way into legitimate supply chains due to fraud. Working in partnership with Everledger, Watson read the Kimberley Process scheme documents, so it read the unstructured data as if it were a person, extracted the conditions required to certify the diamonds as compliant, and these are recorded in the blockchain. And these conditions were then applied to a historical record, back-tested, in other words, of over a million diamonds, which contained narrative text that cognitive read to identify non-compliant stones and uncover correlations about the originating country, shipping period, value. So in other words, cognitives can read and understand almost anything in context. Blockchain provides universal veracity, universal truth. Imagine doing this with a uniform commercial code, the tax code, e-discovery, especially with the advent of the Internet of Things, when there will be billions of times more data than there is now. Evidence chain of custody in criminal matters, etc. This is how these technologies will come together. Well, we want to thank you so much for being our guest today, Brian. I, I think the the word to describe this podcast, Jim, is mind bending. <laughs> the universal sharing the universal truths of the Uniform Commercial Code. Yeah, I didn't think about that when I had that <laughs> class in law school. I'll tell you, it's been a, it's been a pleasure and an honor. I really appreciate the uh, the opportunity to speak with you. Well, thanks for taking the time, Brian. We really do appreciate it, and we know our audience does. And that does it for this edition of the Digital Edge Lawyers and Technology. And remember, you can subscribe to all the editions of this podcast at LegalTalkNetwork.com or on Apple Podcast. And if you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for joining us. Goodbye, Miss Sharon. Happy trails, cowboy. Thanks for listening to The Digital Edge, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Join Sharon Nelson and Jim Calloway for their next podcast covering the latest topic related to lawyers and technology. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Starting your own solo practice is tough. Hi, my name is Adriana Linares, and I host a show called New Solo on Legal Talk Network. In it, I interview successful lawyers who've gone solo and experts in marketing, management, technology, and everything else you need to know that you didn't learn in law school. Find us on iTunes, Google Play, or at LegalTalkNetwork.com. Thank you.